Welcome to another episode of Chronic Detrimental. My name is Dan Lust. Joined this week, three-headed monster, Mike Lawson, Emily Costanzo, and Hunter Bedard. What's up, gang? What's up, Dan? How are we doing? So, special episode this week. First, we have a new sponsor, which we will announce at the end. That's Underdog Fantasy, which we will, we will talk about at the end. We'll save them their own segment. We got some, uh, some Yankees news. We have a podcast full of some Yankee supporters. I figured I would bring on a Red Sox fan to kind of help even out the odds. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of smoke swirling about this infamous Yankees letter. So we're going to go over that. We're going to go over the uh, the remnants of the Deshaun Watson case, which we did not get to break down. Two hundred thirty million dollar guaranteed contract. And we're still playing some quarterback carousel with uh, Baker Mayfield still on the move. And last but not least, Dan has an interview with Adam Koenig with the Kentucky House of Representatives about the legalization efforts for sports betting. Yes, sports betting is set to hit another state. Uh, We're currently at 37. We're making our way to all 50. So we wanted to spotlight Kentucky. We did say it on social media that we're going to make all efforts to make sports betting legal in all 50 states. And, you know, we got a hold of our end of the bargain. So we're bringing up a politician to help talk about that. end. Okay, before we get into the fun stuff, again, we're going to talk Yankees letter, Watson, some sports betting. Guys. How are your brackets looking? Um, well, they're looking great. I'm the, what, the last perfect bracket? Or are we still down? Are we down to zero perfect brackets now? I thought you were going to say you're, you're in last place. You're pretty close. You're hovering around there in the kind of detrimental bracket. 150 user submissions. Emily, you're near the bottom. Mike, near the bottom. Hunter, are you anywhere near the top? I don't think I'm near the top. Um, after the close of first round, I was uh, in the 95th, 96th percentile. But unfortunately for me, I had uh, Kentucky winning it all. So all hopes were shattered on the first night. So at least I ripped it off like a Band-Aid and knew I had no shot right away. Mike, you were saying offline, like coincidentally, this was your only bracket that didn't have UNC beating Baylor. Like I'd like to hear some evidence on that. Most of my brackets, I have about half to 10 in the Sweet 16 right now. Right. I just count that as a plus because you get more points as you get more things right towards the end, right? So I still oh, have... That, that's how I've, March Madness works? That's how I have... What? I Wait, have, did you know it's a bracket system? I did. I have Houston. I have Kansas. I still have Duke in there. I've got Gonzaga in there. So I, I, I'm doing fine, and I, I'm going to kick right back up to the top right towards the end because people have wacky winners like Tennessee and Purdue Interesting. and Interesting. Iowa. Get out of here with that. Tim Hazen, good friend of the show. He comes to all of our different town halls and stuff. He is leading the pack. Unfortunately, he has Michigan to win it all, which I don't, I don't think is, is looking that good. But listen, yours truly is in 10th place in the bracket of 150 and the number two team with Arizona. So got a real shot here. So listen, if I win, somebody else can be the spotlight uh, on conductdetchmethyl.com. You know, I'll give it away. I'm a charitable man. Okay, let us go into our, our main topic. All I can say on Twitter, you know, from maybe the Sean Watson stuff, I'm not sure what else. I have a lot of Houston fans in my replies. I have a lot of Houston fans tagging me. And they think that this infamous Yankees letter, as it's being called, will be the downfall of either the Yankees, Rob Manfred, or both. So, again, Mike Lawson, resident Yankees fan. Emily Costanzo, resident Yankees fan. And Hunter Bedard, current Red Sox fan. Mike, I'm going to give it to you. You did some deep, deep digging in here. Can you give everybody the lay of the land, what this Yankees letter is, where it came from, and I guess then we can talk to what might be coming out on the horizon. But I think a lot of people kind of missed this. This is not something necessarily new. 
Right. So let me answer your initial question is what is this letter? So what contained in this letter is, I guess, unknown because it's been sealed. So MLB did an investigation into the sign stealing scandal saga. And that involves the Astros. It involves the Yankees. It involves the Red Sox. It involves the Mets. It involves the Dodgers. It involves a lot of teams that were in, in this investigation. Major League Baseball had letters back and forth to all of these teams, a number of teams, where they were all confidential and marked to be sealed. Now, if we want to go all the way back to the beginning of this whole sign-stealing era, the Yankees were implied and implicated right in the beginning because 2015 and 2016, they were cited for illegally using their dugout phone. It was kind of, that was the end of it, that they, they weren't real specific on how they were doing it, but they were illegally using the dugout phone to somehow get an advantage or, or look for signs. 2017 was when Manfred uh, had the press release and they publicly came out saying that they were increasing the strictness of their sign stealing policy. And that involved wearable technology, which is involved in the Red Sox a little bit later on. But there was this letter between Major League Baseball and the Yankees about this investigation into the sign stealing scandal during the 2017 season. Obviously, the most infamous team that's implied here is the Houston Astros. We saw the whole scandal, their investigation. Everybody knows about that. That was all over. What's separate here is the Red Sox and the Yankees involvement, where there were kind of allegations going back and forth that involved sign-stealing use of technology. So the Yankees, again, were implied in the Major League Baseball stated that they used dugout phones and the Red Sox were uh, allegedly using Apple Watches. Um, There was allegations that went back and forth, but... There was Why are you saying allegedly? Didn't it actually happen? Why are you saying allegedly? I want it noted for the record that the Red Sox did, in fact, admit to improperly using their. Yeah, well, I, I think this is. It, it, it was admitted, they admitted. I, but I, I think the Yankees did too, though. Let's not let you. They did. They, yeah. <laughs> that allegedly is just in my it's in my vocab at this point. Oh, so yeah, yeah, they they did. They they came out saying that they they did use technology to to gain an advantage on sign stealing. So now 2017. This all of this happens. The Astros scandal. Then 2018 was the the Apple Watch investigation within the Red Sox. That's when the allegations go back and forth that they were using technology. And what we have now is in 2020, a lawsuit that was filed by a DraftKings fantasy sports gambler player in which he uh, accused Major League Baseball and the Astros and the Red Sox specifically, as well as a hundred other entities being the Major League Baseball teams, that the sign stealing scandal saga affected their bets, their their fantasy bets, their prop bets, all of that. It was a $5 million lawsuit and it was in the Southern District of New York. Now within that lawsuit in the Southern District, there was a motion for summary judgment by Major League Baseball, by the defendants. uh, And there was also a court order to unseal the letter between the Yankees and Major League Baseball. And the reason for that was an evidentiary purpose that they said that there was information within that that needed to be public because of the way that the Major League Baseball handled the investigation. The motion for summary judgment was granted in favor of the defendants, and the court order was also granted to unseal this letter. It gets elevated to the Second Circuit. This is two years ago, so 2020. Now we have a ruling from the Second Circuit, now in 2022, that they affirmed the motion for summary judgment, which basically means that I mean, he can appeal, but the, the, his case is over for the lawsuit against Major League Baseball and its entities for the sign stealing scandal, scandal that Im- impacted daily fantasy sports users. And they affirmed the court order where they are going to unseal this letter. Now, what is in this letter exactly? I can tell you, I can tell you the information that's going to bring down the Yankees once and for all. 
I, that's what it is. I, I mean, I feel pretty confident. In this. Dan, I think they've been brought down for what, 21 years now. I mean, I think I was three oh. years old the last time the Yankees won a world series. So just wanted to well, know well, they did win in the A-Rod years. What was that? 2009? Oh, yes. I'm still loyal to A-Rod. I don't care. And also, wait, Hunter, just the, the basic argument is, oh, let's look at overall titles. Let's just look at it. And then your, your argument's done. Goodbye. I'm just okay. saying, I'm 23 years old. I don't remember the last time the Yankees won a World Series. Everyone always talking about the big, bad Yankees. I mean, it's been a long time. It's what we call the dynasty, Hunter. Yes, thank you. Anyway, Dan, you don't know what's in the – there's going to be absolutely nothing in the letters. And that's what's – that's the key right now. And all we're going to do is we're going to see these letters come out, and baseball fans across the country are going to be mad at one person and one person alone. Our favorite person to be mad at, Rob Manfred. And that's, that, that's all it's going to be because he's going to ha- – the allegations are that he he downplayed what the Yankees, I'll use uh, I'll use Mike Mike's words, allegedly did, and he comes off looking like a liar and a poor leader once again. Emily, I'm going to get back to you, but Hunter, I, I don't think you're you're hearing this part. The Yankees won in 2009, so I feel like you were alive and well and kind of remembered that. So unless you like Doogie Howser and you're like an 11 year old law student, I feel like you I feel like you remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have uh, put that one out of my memory. Red Sox have won a couple since then, four in my lifetime. So is what it is. Okay. So listen, fair. We're, we're not here to legislate this. Obviously, the Red Sox is a better team than the Yankees. It's not a big deal. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So I'm going back to substance here. The Yankees have fought this. They fought the disclosure of this. And I'm saying, like, what's in the letter? I don't know. But the Yankees don't want it to come out, right? So certainly, right? There is a world where the Yankees letter is, is not beneficial. So, I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think it's really nothing? They keep citing that it would raise what they called serious privacy issues. So I can understand really them, no pun intended, going to bat for their guys and just wanting the names. to. I know I think the names are actually going to be redacted in the letter anyway, but I don't think there's going to be any meat to this. And there's certainly, you know, Astro fans being mad. There's not going to be any meat that's going to remotely raise, rise to the level of what the Astros did. So I think they should pack it in and, and stop worrying about it. The Yankees argue that the harm from the unsealing of the Yankees will arise because its content, quote, would be distorted to falsely and unfairly generate the confusing scenario that the Yankees had somehow violated MLB's sign sealing rules. There is a little, and I taught this in my class this last year, there is a little bit of like semantics here because sign stealing wasn't technically illegal for a period of time, right? They came up with these technology rules because of the Apple Watch stuff that the Red Sox were doing. You know, the Yankees had their own little stuff, but like, why, why the, the Astros got in trouble is because warnings were issued and the Astros continued to do it. That's that's the story. So if that's what the court is saying, the Yankees did something wrong, but it wasn't technically illegal. It's kind of a cop out. But, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing some names come out. We didn't certainly didn't get the names in the Astros saga. So, you know, if the Yankees have some players heads that roll, like I, I certainly can see that happening. It's because Major League Baseball has a history of reacting instead of being proactive. So it happened with the steroid era. They knew about steroids in the 80s and the 90s. They didn't do anything about it. And it wasn't technically illegal until after, in 2000, I think it was 2008 or whatever. So it's the same thing here. They, they reacted to the sign stealing scandal. I guarantee you that something in some of these letters implies that the Yankees or one of the teams goes to Major League Baseball and is like, hey, you told us this wasn't going to be a big deal. Now it's a big deal. And now it's against the rules. 
So th that's exactly what I think. If something happens to be in this letter, it's going to blow up in Manfred's face in Major League Baseball because it's going to be the teams being like, look, you told us one thing, then you told us another thing, then you changed the rule, and then you specified. So if anything there, it it's going to be like that. But why I think there's actually nothing really substantive in these letters is because of what the Southern District of New York Judge Rakoff said, and in this, in the Second Circuit, Chief Judge uh, Livingston said. Both times, both judges have stated that the letter's contents have already been revealed when Major League Baseball had their 2017 press release about the sign stealing scandal. What that means to me is there's, there's a thing called in-camera review, and there's an evidentiary issue that's in front of a court. You have to present it to the judge, and they do an in-camera review where the judge reviews it and determines whether or not that that evidence is to be admissible or to be turned over or to be unsealed. So that is definitely what's happening here, that the letter is in front of the judge, they're reviewing the letter, and they're going to say what they told you. Most of this letter has already been publicly released. Therefore, it doesn't hurt or harm anybody to that to now publicly release the entire letter because you already know what the contents are of this letter. So that means nothing's going to happen. We already know the Yankees were involved. They were fined. They, they were cited by the Major League Baseball. But if anything, again, I go back to this. If anything's going to be implied here, it's going to be that Rob Manfred dulled what actually happened or there was something that was said to Major League Baseball that implies that they didn't do anything or were negligent in their own right. I want to just jump in here and say that overall, sign stealing as a general tactic is not illegal. It's that sign stealing when done via the use of technology, that is illegal. So the standard idea of, you know, the runner on second signaling to the batter at the plate, that's fine. But obviously the Red Sox <coughs> using the Apple Watches, <laughs> the Astros, <coughs> you know, banging the trash cans, using the uh, using their cameras, that's all obviously, obviously illegal. And then also on what Mike was saying about the two judges basically saying, look, this is already public. Why are you freaking out? I think that the Yankees would be smart to just say, hey, you know, release it. I, I understand protecting their guys, but the whole push of that both of the judges were sitting on was that, you know, the fans can make their own assessment of what this letter is. And coming off of these long overdue CBA negotiations and frustrating the fans and the fans just being overall angry with the MLB, you know, throw this out as, you know what, we really want to put this in front of you guys. And we want you guys to make your own opinion. So who just spoke? Yankees fan, Yankees fan. Oh, it's not a big deal. Letter's not a big deal. Okay. And the cases are being decided in New York. Okay. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan. We were in no way, shape or form connected Why? to the sign stealing saga. Because we are, okay? We've New got York three Giants. titles since Wait, 2010. Uh, oh, Barry Bonds. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, okay. You know what? Barry Bonds probably cheated. Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Probably in any event. Did. Probably was never was never caught. Giant head, shape and shape of a basketball, never was caught. Okay. But I think important here, I'll speak for the Houston Astros fans that are in my replies. The Astros were painted as a scapegoat for all of baseball sign ceiling Skaga, right? So they weren't the first to do it. And they certainly weren't the only team doing it. The key is they okay. won other, doing it. Yeah, but other teams have won doing it too, just because just we don't know about it, right? But I think the Astros fans, I think it was like them against the world. They were painted as the only cheaters in the sport and they were kind of the scapegoat. So I think if you're a non-fan of the Yankees, which, you know, I, I'm from New York, so I support the Yankees, you know, relatively, right? I'm more of a Yankees fan than a Red Sox fan, but like, play it where it lies, right? If you guys have nothing to hide, throw it out there, right? And let the fans make it up. So Mike, you could say like, let the fans make the decision, right? But I think the letter should come out. We'll see if the Yankees want to appeal it to a higher court. But the more the Yankees fight this, I think it's more for fans to, to and, you know, just, I don't know, lawyers to fairly speculate, like, you got nothing to hide. Why do you keep appealing this bad boy? Just let this thing fly. Don't keep spending legal spend on appeal on appeal. So my antennas are up here. I think there's something in there. Hunter, Red Sox fan. 
What do you think? Get, get my back here. From my perspective, I think the Yankees are probably viewing it as just kind of beating a dead horse. And they think it, you know, they dealt with this in the past and it's not something they want to come up again, but I'm with you. I think at the end of the day, you can let the fans speculate, but I think it should be unsealed and they should go from there. The thing here is the Yankees can, can also take the narrative because they can just release a report because they're saying that people are going to misconstrue the letter, the contents of the letter to mean something else. And this is what the court said too. The Yankees can take the narrative over and say, okay, this is what happened. This is actually what happened. Let's let me and do a public statement or a public press release where they can actually explain what's happening in the letter. Because I guess if you have letters going back and forth and you're responding to letters, it's not going to be, there are going to be some vague they're going to be just release the letter. We're not writing not, a report on the letter. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, Ooh, I'm saying whose the, payroll are you on, Mike? <laughs> no, I'm saying what the court said to release the letter. The, the Yankees were arguing that because it's vague, people are going to misconstrue the letter, but release the letter. And now the Yankees can take the narrative once it's released to do a press release to explain whatever is in the letter. So take that's what's going to happen. Take baseball's letters, take Yankees letters, let everything fly, right? Like it's the world of transparency at this point. We've been on this podcast. We've been very vocal. Hashtag release the report, Washington commander stuff. Like just release the letters, right? And I think people, if there's nothing to hide, not a big deal. You know um, what the Yanks should do? They should release a letter and then turn to conduct detrimental. And then we'll explain it to the people. That's what they should do. You guys are going to laugh. Well, I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it for the next topic. I have, I'm sitting on something big, but just, just, we have some very big people that are now one of the radars of some people. You guys know I've been making fun of the Big Ten for about two years. The Big Ten, there's someone at the Big Ten that's very high up that followed me. And now, like, we're on the watch list. So we just got to be careful here. Just got to be careful. Just to close out this, uh, what we're going to see going forward with, with this Yankees letter and unsealing. The Yankees have 14 days. That's under Federal Rule 40, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, that is, uh, to decide whether or not they want to appeal. So 14 days, that brings it to April 4th. So keep that on your books to see if they actually file the appeal. And again, I believe that this is going to be an en banc hearing. So this appeal is going to be under, again, let's go to the rule books. Federal Rule 35, an en banc hearing, and that's going to be in front of all of the justices within the Second Circuit so they can make a ultimate ruling on this letter, whether or not it is to be sealed or revealed. I know, Dan, you wanted to stick with baseball, and uh, we have some news on the Themis front and UVA front. You know, we'll keep an eye on it. Mike is obviously a biased Yankees fan, so don't believe anything that he just said, but, you know. Uh, there's probably something to hide here. Okay, let's stick with the diamond for a minute. Coming up next week, the UVA softball tournament, otherwise known as the Softball Invitational. As everyone knows, this podcast is sponsored by Themis Barview and Themis, not just sponsoring the podcast, they're sponsoring the UVA softball tournament. So I competed back in the day. Uh, and when was I competing? I think 19, 1949, 1950. Um, we had Benjamin yeah. Franklin flying the kite. There was some electricity oh, popping down. Oh, you know, it was like the, the dawn, of, dawn of the era. Maybe yeah. some dinosaurs dinosaur in the outfield. Rolling. Yeah, little dinosaurs, yeah. little raptors. Dinosaurs you know, rolling in the outfield. I think that's a movie. Angels in the outfield. But Mike competed once upon a time. Emily doesn't believe in softball, only believes in soccer. Hunter, well, the other reason we had you on the show, you are the president of Florida Sports Law, and you are a team member of the heavy favorite, according to most books, for the tournament. So, Hunter, talk about Themis sponsoring UVA softball tournament. You think Florida's going to take this down? 
I think we are, Dan. Um, the last two years, the tournament was canceled due to COVID. But before that, UF Law is back-to-back champs in 2018 and 2019 in the Correct division. So, you know, they have 50 or so teams from 30 to 40 schools. And I think they even had more in the pre-COVID era. But uh, they have a Correct division and an open division. And UF Law took it down two years in a row. So we're ready to roll. UVA Law has been talking a lot of smack on their Instagram where they promote the tournament. But uh, Florida is going to come in there and uh, we got something to say. We're ready to, you know, three-peat and be a uh, softball dynasty. Shout out to Valerie Marie, who claims to be the captain and president. Is that accurate? That's right. Val, Val Lamb. Yeah, she's our captain. Okay. And, and Devin Connell. Is that another, is that another ringer right. on the team? Devin Connell. Yeah, one of our best power hitters right there. Okay. So I'm also hearing sources that you guys were running the tournament back in 2015, 2016. So Florida does have a history. Okay, Villanova claims to be, you know, the football sports low competition dynasty. Fordham has their claim with baseball. I'm ready to anoint Florida the softball law school competition dynasty. If you guys win again, I think we could anoint you guys that. Fair? Em, is that fair? Can we anoint them a dynasty if they win three years in a row? I mean, before we anoint them, I think we should just check Hunter's stats, being that he messed up the Yankees earlier. But besides that, if we find out he's, oh. if we find out he's right, then yes, we can anoint. But until I mean, be- then, until it's fact-checked, <laughs> no. So Hunter, to, to confirm this, sent me some sort of a logo that someone did with the Gator holding up two trophies, one that said 2018 and one that said 2019. Okay, and factually, okay. there was no tournament in 2020 and 2021. So unless Hunter has some fancy graphics design person that just lied about that graphic, oh. I think we're good. Yeah, I got a picture, actually. I got a, I got a picture of the 2019 team holding up a trophy, too. So we're ready to claim our dynasty. I know you're always talking about, um, you know, the different dynasties and the debate when it comes to negotiation competitions. And while that's very impressive, all I have to say is touch dirt. I mean, if you're going to talk sports law, you better be able to play sports. So at the Hunter, end of the day, Hunter, act like you've been here before. I'm man. just saying. Um, we're talking humility. Sports. Humility. Just saying you're talking sports, you better be able to play them to an extent. So I'd just love to show up and hit dingers. That was it. There it, it is. All, there like, it is. Like Big Al. Like Big Al. He likes to hit dingers. Anybody get that reference? Hunter gets that reference. Big Al likes to hit dingers. Okay. Big it's Al. a Little League, Little League Wolters reference. Okay. Themis Bar View has got the Themis Cup for soccer. And listen, I think they might do a Themis Cup for softball. Florida Law Softball, I see the jersey. You guys are our pick. Well, you know, so we'll, we'll say you're our official sponsored team. If anybody's listening to this, okay, and you see the Florida team, tell them you heard on Conic Detriment that they're the favorite and then spit on them. You could do something mean to them, but like they should be booed, pissed wherever way they go, okay? They're like the Miami Heat in 2012. You should boo them, okay? Put all the pressure on them. Okay. Let's go. We um, want all the smoke. Before we, we finish talking about Florida, I am uh, moderating a panel this Friday in, in like, you know, 72 hours. Florida Sports uh, and Entertainment Law Symposium. Hunter, you did a fantastic job playing this bad boy. Got a lot of friends of the show on there. You got Dylan Harriger, you got Michael McCann, you got, uh, you know, Morgan Fraser, another friend. But but go ahead, give us give it the symposium a little plug. That's right. So Entertainment Sports Law Society, we have our annual spring symposium this Friday. It's going to run from 845 to 4 p.m. with seven different panels. So people can jump in and out on whichever ones interest them. And we got Conduct Detrimental Zone, Dan Lust, moderating the first panel of the day with Darren Heitner, who founded Easels over at UF Law, and Jason Sechin, which is a Miami Law grad, but we won't hold that against them. And so I'm sure the three of them are going to have a great conversation on athlete advocacy to kick it off and like uh, like Dan said, we have a lot of a lot of friends of the show on throughout the day. So come check it out. Go follow uh, UF Easels um, on Instagram, and all the information will be on there. Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, go check out the link I have it on my socials, but definitely check that out. Should be a great time. 
good luck. We're going to, everyone's going to boo you. So, you know, kind of detrimental people go show up, go boo Florida. Appreciate it, Dan. Switching gears to a more serious topic, you know, Deshaun Watson, we were thinking of doing an emergency podcast on Friday. Decided to kind of let it pull over. I was, if anybody was following me on Friday, I was, I was a little hot. You know, I think that Deshaun Watson has a right to play in the league again. I do. I've been on the record saying that I think Trevor Bauer should be able to play in the league again. Due process should win out to some extent. What I didn't think in my wildest, wildest dreams is that Deshaun Watson would go from being a complete toxic asset in the NFL, the guy that was like almost releasable, right, with the flip of a coin of a grand jury, which we'll get into the grand jury analysis. But he goes from basically untradeable to being the most valued asset in the NFL. And when the smoke clears, what does Watson do? And we'll talk about the little bit of lead up. Watson signed a fully guaranteed $230 million contract. So that is 80 million more guaranteed than the next closest crop of players. That's Aaron Rodgers and it's Josh Allen and Pat Mahomes. That's the next group. It's 100% guaranteed, which we normally only see in basketball. We don't really see that in football. Okay, but then again, maybe if I'm someone for players' rights, it's great that, that they were having a 100% guaranteed contract. I just don't think Watson's the guy to do it. It doesn't really make sense. Okay, whatever. You pay the guy a massive contract. If you weren't just going to give him the money is one thing. Beyond that, though, the Cleveland Browns part with three first-round draft picks, which is unheard of, right? Herschel Walker back in the day was three first-round picks. Deshaun Watson, I don't think we can – it's an unprecedented trade on a couple levels, but to give the guy with 22 pending civil cases to make him like the – I don't know what other way to put it, like the – you know, player right to trailblazer, like Kurt Flood helped set, you know, change baseball forever, that like we're going to have this watershed moment in football where guaranteed contracts are recognized on the backs of Deshaun Watson. Like the whole situation, it just, listen, I am one for due process. I think the guy should play in the league again. But like the Browns bending over backwards and falling over themselves to get back in the trade race, I don't know. I, I just, it kind of disgusted me. Like okay, we just forgot that the guy was about to, you know, get indicted. We, we forgot that the guy has 22 pending civil cases. I, I have more on the history, but Em, I know you have some thoughts here. You know, I know you're not a Browns fan, but I can only only sense uh, that your your anger is, is only matched by true Browns fans. Absolutely. I mean, it's what you said. The guy has 22 pending civil suits against him. I mean, and to not only to take him, but to take him on, like you said, to such a massive degree to guarantee him that much money, because that what that contract says is you're incredibly valuable. We want you for the long run. We believe in you, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, I just finished watching the Aaron Hernandez <laughs> Netflix series. And just you look at all of these guys in the NFL that have been slapped down because of their off-field behavior. So, so what, we're turning around and we're, we're rewarding this behavior? And I agree with you, Dan. You've got – due process has to win out. But when you look at the women that have been allegedly victimized by Watson over and over and over again, it's it's disappointing. It's disappointing and comes off like the Browns are in their corner. Let's do a little bit of a breakdown because we had Matt Timpanic on when the grand jury came back without an indictment. And we talked about a lot of things. We talked about this concept of a Venn diagram of – who, you know, had the civil cases with the criminal cases. Let's keep, be, let's be very mindful, right? There are 22 women with civil suits. There are additional women that filed criminal complaints that did not file civil suits. There are also women here that have not filed either, right? A criminal complaint or a civil suit. Plus, let's also address the elephant in the room, 40 masseuses, right? So I don't really care at the end of the day. This is me, right? If Deshaun Watson is in charge with the crime, I, I still think there's a world where it paints your organization in a really bad light. Like, I don't know, it's innocent to prove a guilty, I'm sure. But Deshaun Watson could be doing something that is maybe 
a little nefarious. That's not necessarily illegal. It's not necessarily going to result in any culpability in a civil court. But I mean, for better, or for worse, like that's the message that's now attached to Deshaun Watson. So you send a very loud message when you bend over backwards. And let me just give everybody the trade chronology, Mike, and then, and then we'll get into the suspension stuff, which I don't know, there's maybe another reason, right? Guys are looming suspension, maybe, possibly. Don't break the bank to get them. Okay. So once the smoke on the grand jury cleared, that's when all bets were off. All of a sudden, you know, uh, the Texans were holding court. And they basically said, listen, if you were a team and you want to Deshaun Watson, propose us a trade. If we tentatively accept your trade, we will basically give it to Deshaun Watson to pick one of you, one of these teams. So the way it turned out, and I guess there would be some combination. If a team was tentatively accepted, but Watson didn't want to meet with them, they didn't make it on the final list. So what we saw is that four teams made it to the final list. Carolina Panthers, Cleveland Browns, the New Orleans Saints, and the Atlanta Falcons. During this whole process, which, I don't know, for the football purposes, Cleveland Browns were in the running. Baker Mayfield, their quarterback, was kind of upset that they were in the running for Deshaun, so he got all pouty, and now he demanded a trade. That's a whole, whole other topic. But the Cleveland Browns were notified that they were out of the running for Deshaun Watson. So they was down to three. The Carolina Panthers then were told that they were out of the running. So it was down to two teams. Those were all official reports. And the two teams were the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints. And the betting odds, I guess we're a betting podcast now, those betting odds dropped to the low 20s. So that's a pretty good indication that Vegas felt that he was going to one of those two teams. So the Browns went from like 20 to one back to 35 to one. So Vegas thought all bets were off. So Baker is demanding a trade. He now doesn't want to be a part of the team. His feelings were hurt. He's, you know, he's feeling a little slighted. So the Browns go from having one like, you know, average, below average, what do you want to ever call Baker? I, I actually kind of like Baker, but whatever. You have Baker. Now Baker doesn't want to play for the team anymore. So now you go and Deshaun doesn't want you. So now you have zero quarterbacks. So my, my sense of the situation is that the Browns got so desperate that they so botched the situation that they went to Deshaun Watson's team and essentially said, we will do whatever it takes to land you. Whatever it takes. Deshaun Watson's agent, rightfully, a smart guy. He liked one of my comments the other day that said he was a smart guy for doing what I'm about to tell you. Mike will relay it. Like, there's some heavy people that watch what we do. So, but I mean, I call, call it like I see it. The Browns basically gave up the farm. They gave up all of their draft capital. And they gave a guy $230 million guaranteed. Teams across the league are not happy with the message sent in the NFL, but they're also not happy that they just reset the guaranteed contract market for a guy like Deshaun Watson. So the Browns had to bend over backwards. So that's the history. The Browns end up with him. Mike, there's something so unique and equally kind of gross as it is brilliant that the Browns did here with, with Watson's agent. So, Mike, I know this has happened, I guess, with the Brady saga, but I just think it wasn't the time or place to do it here. But that's where we are. We talked about the status of Watson. Uh, we've talked about it a number of times on previous podcasts, previous episodes, where Watson was in limbo. He was kind of stuck, where Commissioner Goodell wasn't putting him on the exempt list, wasn't suspending him. It went as far as saying that they didn't have enough to suspend him. There wasn't enough evidence there. And then, which basically mean, meant he was eligible to play, yet the Texans didn't play him. He didn't play a single snap last year. So even though he was eligible because he wasn't suspended, but the, the thought was if he, as soon as he played one game, then that would probably push the NFL towards suspension if they were going to do anything, right? What was going to be the, the straw that broke the camel's back if they were going to actually suspend Watson? So then they talked about the trade deals. And we've talked about this too, where it was, it would be negligent of a general manager for trading for Watson with the possibility that he could be suspended immediately by the NFL. So you just traded a lot of draft picks, a lot of money for 
Deshaun Watson for him to be suspended a year by the NFL. Congrats. You just lost the season. So here we have the Browns doing that yet. The contract is backloaded and just in case he is suspended and action is taken by the NFL and Roger Goodell that he is suspended for one year, that that 2022 base salary is $1.035 million. And then every year after that is $46 million. We talked about $230 million guaranteed, right? And I, I went to, I did some research, you know, some additional salary cap based research. I guess what they did is they tacked on an additional year and they tacked on $90 million. Okay. So just put that aside. That's that's what the, they also renegotiated the contract. Okay. Of that $230 million, $229 is being paid out in the back part of that contract. So they've, it's not backloaded, it's not doing it justice. They've like put all of the weight on it, right? They're putting $1 million for the first year. Like, does anybody else find that a little bit suspicious? Like to me, right? And I, I know there's two ways, I guess, to read it. But to me, that tells you that the Sean Watson's camp is expecting a suspension. Right. I think I think that's the logical way to read it. And I think they probably asked the Browns to structure that way. The Browns are like, oh, we'll do anything. We're desperate as hell. We'll take anything right now because we have no quarterback and we messed this thing up colossally. So bail us out and we'll we'll throw a boatload of money at you, Deshaun Watson, the player in the league who sends the worst message for better, for worse, innocent to proven guilty. I know. But the message is still very clear. We care more like let's do another little little geometry lesson. Right. I think this is geometry might be algebra. I'm not sure. The greater than sign, right? Winning is more important than everything. That's the message that the Cleveland Browns sent. Everything. That's it. Doesn't matter. You could be charged with the, with the crime, civil case. Doesn't matter. The Browns just said, we care about winning. That's it. Which well, sometimes is good. Sometimes it's not. Definitely. What they did, though, how they structured this, though, obviously, we, I just said, they, a million on the first year because there's the possibility that he could be suspended. They just took the money that would have been guaranteed in that first year and gave it to him in a signing bonus. So his signing bonus was $45 million, and then his first-year salary is $1 million. So he effectively up front got his first-year salary in his signing bonus. But the thing is, and I think this is interesting, I thought about this while you were talking about Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield hasn't been traded yet. So in the chance that Deshaun Watson gets suspended, say it comes down in the next couple of weeks, before they trade Baker Mayfield, now the Browns have a suspended Watson on their bench. They only have to pay him a million dollars, and they still have Baker Mayfield, who they can then put on the field while Watson is suspended. Baker's gone. They signed Jacoby Brissett to be the backup. They're playing backup musical chairs. Baker, Baker's gone. I'm watching the futures over there. You guys know I'm, I'm on. So um, let's, let's, let's stick with this, this topic of the suspension, right? I saw a report from Pro Football Talk today that a trip to the exempt list could be coming. It's certainly possible. I know we talked about it with, with, you know, with Matt, but like, I just want to talk about two scenarios. So there's a lot of people, I guess, number one, Mike, I, I should say this. There are people saying that the Browns like to have like these very small base salaries in your own for cap purposes, which, okay. Those other players don't have 22 civil cases and aren't facing a looming suspension. So throw that out the door, right? I, I hear you guys in the replies. I hear everyone yelling at me. I just don't buy the argument. Okay. So here's to the other section, right? The grand jury doesn't return with an indictment. So there's two readings of this, right? We had this fun time with the expression, right? The grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Also, I don't think we talked about it on the podcast. We got a shout out from the Pat McAfee show that a lawyer guy was talking about the ham sandwich analogy. I think I'm the lawyer guy. I think I was the only one talking about it that week. You know, I'll take credit for it. But the grand jury, it's, it, it's such an easy procedure. It's a one-sided process for the prosecutor that they can really indict anybody. They could even indict a ham sandwich. It's that easy. So if the prosecutor really wants to, they can get an indictment. They didn't get it here. So that tells you one of two things, that the evidence was really weak 
or the prosecutor didn't want indictment. Tells you one of two things. Again, I don't want to, you know, pile on Mr. Adam Schefter, but it doesn't necessarily tell you the truth. It could. There's a version where it could tell you the truth, but doesn't necessarily, right? There's a lot of politics that go on in Houston. You know, I don't, I don't need to get into the weeds on that. But all I point this out to say is that the Cleveland Browns, I think, are taking the version of events where the evidence was insufficient. The problem with that, the Browns put out a statement. They said, we did this comprehensive due diligence. We looked at everything. No stone unturned. And then Tony Busby, who's certainly not a fan of the podcast. We were talking a lot of shit about Tony Busby when this case first started. Tony Busby pops out and he says, well, no one talked to me. No one talked to any of my clients. How is that for due diligence? Nobody talked to me at any point in time. And Tony Busby kind of has a point in him. What do you think? The Browns are in a great position with the lack of indictment because, like you said, they can just wash their hands. But, oh, there wasn't enough evidence. And I think, really, it was a cop-out that the Browns management came out with that long, you know, dry, we did so much. And like you said, every stone unturned. But really, I was reading it. And, you know, Dan, I'll be honest with you, I was reading it as a woman. And the takeaway there was they were focusing on football and they're all they're seeing is dollar signs and all they're seeing is that they're going to get this guy who is a phenomenal athlete, despite what he may have done off the field. And, you know, it, it kind of, it undercuts the bravery. One of these women to come forward, Dan, like you said, if there's 22 that have come forward, you've got to assume with a name as big as Sean Watson, there are even more that didn't come forward. And really the, the statement that management went out was, you know, oh, you know, let's just uh, shove this under the rug and everything's fine. And, you know, let's go play some football and win some games. Well, you know, it, that, that's that's half the story. And I think that's I, I think it's a really disappointing approach from management, especially considering all the female fans of the league. And in the age we're at, where we're we're acknowledging women's voices when they are coming forward with these allegations. I mean, what that you're saying that he did none of this, you know, I mean, come on. Clearly, there was a misstep. And I think Busby coming out saying that really blew it up. Obviously, they didn't do as much as they said they did. But the thing here, I wanted to go back to what you said, Dan, with the exemplist, right? If Commissioner Goodell was going to put him on the exemplist, he already would have done so. Because once you're on the exemplist, it's basically paid leave. You can practice with the team. You can't compete with the team. And you're still paid as if you were on the team. But the, the team doesn't get hit with your roster spot. So, When it comes to that, I think based on how they made this salary, based on how they put the $1 million in in the first year, I'm leaning more towards a suspension where he's not paid. If they actually believe some sort of punishment is going to come down, it's going to be in the form of of a suspension for a personal conduct violation. Uh, If it's conduct detrimental, I mean, that's that's a limited suspension. But I, I think this would be more on the personal conduct aspect of it. But I think if anything's going to happen, what we're going to see is a suspension and not the exemplist. We'll see. I mean, I think it would be pretty unfair for Watson's purposes for him to be placed on the exemplist after all of this time. Right. Like he, Dan and I had this disagreement in the last show. Like Watson really has not been punished. There's no, you can't double punish a guy, but Watson wasn't punished last year. He sat and he was paid his full salary. You know, there's no reductions. That was a Texans and I guess a Watson decision, but if he has a grievance, he can take it up with the Texans. But like he just wasn't playing last year. So I don't think it would be fair for him to be placed in the exemplist. I think he should get a suspension or nothing. So, you know, suspension, you know, or not a nothing, but I think the suspension is, is the right level. So, Five and a half games is where I've been putting this over underline in my head. I think there's a world where he could get no suspension. And that's because Goodell back in October, when he probably could have put him on the exemplist, did it. So I'll say it again, just so you know, we can have the tapes. But like Goodell wasn't inclined to put him on the exemplist. And we really haven't learned anything new since then. So there's that world. 
then there's the other world where Goodell wants to send a loud message and hit him with the 10-game suspension. I'm leaning towards the over because of this way this contract is structured, that Watson's team expects it to be coming. They're putting, like, these fail-safe measures in place to protect against it. So I'm like, I don't know if Watson's team expects it to be coming. Like, I, I kind of expect it to be coming. You know, we both talked on Tony Busby. Busby is out here, right? You know, I, I, I don't know. I just want to be clear. Like, Browns fans, I had this tweet that I'm like, I think the case could go until 2024. And everyone's like, no, it won't. It's not. And I'm like, okay, well, it didn't settle for the first year of the case from March of 2021 until March of 2022. And guess what happened in the middle? Really the biggest thing that changed. These you know, women are going to say that the criminal justice system failed them. So settlement is really based on two things. right? If you want money, you just want a payday, There's someone can write you a check. But sometimes you don't want to settle based on principle. And you want to tell your story, right? And I use the term online, to a captive courtroom. The, these women can hold up the case for as long as they want. I'm not saying hold up. They have a right to take this case you know, as far as they want. And this is not the type of case that's going to be decided on motion practice. This is a he said, she said type deal. Motion practice is when there are no factual issues for a jury to resolve. This is all credibility. So it's going to come down to a factual analysis. So if it does get to the trial phase, let's keep this in mind, right? Watson has not been inclined to settle one or two of these cases. It's looked like he's always wanted to settle all of them or none of them. The report, again, we, we keep saying it, but at last year's trade deadline, there were four holdouts to settle this case. That was the reporting that was out there. So that means 18 women were willing to settle, four were not. I think that number four is probably rising after what happened with the grand jury. And then keep this in mind, right? If Watson doesn't want to settle any of these cases, and also side note, if Watson does settle any of them, I think Goodell probably has a little bit more to suspend him with, but just, I guess we'll put that in the side for now. All of these cases cannot be consolidated for purposes of a trial. They're all different factual cases. So I don't know. I, I do think they would be tried like one week on, one week off, one week on, one week off. And I don't know. You have 22 cases. That's basically a year of trial. I mean, it's, it's a world where this case goes into 2025. Like, so Cleveland Browns fans can get mad at me all they want. Like, if they don't settle, this is a complex case with 22 cases. It's not a class action lawsuit. It's kind of has the same vibes in terms of, you know, in terms of length here. So 2024, I think, is is the right time. And Mike, anything to add? No, I mean, I just, I, I hope that the the Browns give the weight of the situation that it deserves and see how this turns out. But at the end of the day, I think this is the most important takeaway is that this is bigger than football. You know, there's been many stories about there's a, been a huge uptake in uh, donations to the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, um, which, you know, I like to see. But I also think it's a little bit of a cop out. I think that the management is just looking to cover their tracks on this. But, you know, at the end of the day, if, if these women are being supported, um, that's that's really all that matters. The story um, pro football talk had, I'm sure, is a lot of different places, but it's not just Browns fans. It's I think it's heavily Browns fans. There's a quote. It says, we've had survivors say I've been a lifelong Browns fan. My family are Browns fans, but I'm also a survivor and I'm absolutely outraged by the decision. You know, there, there are allegations here of sexual misconduct, you know, so it's tough. I guess the only the part I wanted to talk about, it's not, you know, Emily talking like it's bigger than football. It is like there are fans of different franchises. I know the Bills, I guess, had a lot of fans. Buffalo Bills have no, no connection to this at all are donating to this Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. So, you know, it's a story that I think as football fans, the like I know Carolina Panthers fans, Saints fans, Falcons, they're all like breathing a sigh of relief that they don't have to deal with this. So, you know, Watson could win a Super Bowl. Great. Like, it sent a really bad message that what's going on is more important. And it's not, again, I don't want anybody to get this twisted. Like, I think we're all on the same page that Deshaun Watson can, can play football. We're not saying that he can't. We're not saying that he shouldn't. Maybe, you know, everyone gets second chance if he did something wrong, innocent until proven guilty. The fact that the Browns 
paid this much for a guy who's about to be suspended, most likely be suspended. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It's fine. You have to over like pay him the most guaranteed money in the history of football ever. Uh, and then trade three first round picks. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't know, like Pat Mahomes didn't get a hundred percent guaranteed contract. Josh Allen did get a hundred percent guaranteed in his contract. Like something, something odd is happening. So, you know, I don't, I don't love it, but um, you know, uh, I guess the next step in the saga, which is Mike's point, we'll see if there's a suspension here, but that's it. You know, people are playing Madden. They got Cleveland Browns, you know, Deshaun Watson. And I guess the world keeps turning. And like, it's maybe those lawyers will keep putting our flag down. If people think I'm yelling about it too much, it's really because people have just like moved on. They're like, like Adam Schefter's like, this contract will change the name of the game for athletes. And I'm like, like Adam, chill, dude. Like they, this, this is not the, the flag bearer. Like this, this is, is not, not the guy the, that you want changing. Not where you want to plant your flag. No. No, and I, and this is why you know people see where where we come to as, as you know the sports law podcast. I think ESPN puts Schefter in a, in a tough spot because like he's not a lawyer and he's kind of asked to analyze stuff. So I don't I'm not knocking on Schefter. I'm kind of knocking ESPN. Like, listen, get some some uh, some quality sports lawyers out here. Maybe pick up one. Don't put your your town in some trouble over here. Okay. For our, our third segment, Dan recorded an interview with you know House of Representatives Adam Koenig over in Kentucky about the progress made on sports betting in Kentucky. So without further ado, we will kick it to Dan's interview with Adam Koenig. All right, my good friend, Representative Adam Koenig, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. You know, we're uh, in the process of starting a, a new uh, sports betting related podcast. And I thought for the very first episode, we've got to handle Kentucky, which is near and dear to my heart. And big news coming out of the State House last week. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And you've tried three times to legalize sports betting, or at least to get it through uh, the House of Representatives. Congratulations, you pitched, uh, it was a blowout last week. Tell us what happened and what made all the difference in year three or year four. I don't, I don't know what year it is anymore in terms of the number of attempts, but congratulations on getting by this very important uh, you know, signpost. Thank you, I appreciate it. And yeah, um, this was year four, third time we passed it out of committee, first time it passed the House floor. Uh, and I've, I've been asked by a couple of reporters what what's the difference this year, and uh, I think it's two things. One, we are entirely surrounded, with the exception of about 40-mile border with Missouri, by states that have legalized it. We've gone, I keep telling people, we've gone from one state, you know, since uh, the overturning of PASPA to 33 states in the District of Columbia where it's legal. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is, frankly, the legislature has gotten younger. And if you're under 40, you don't have a problem with, with this uh, issue. And, and it's, it's amazing. I, when I'm not here in Frankfurt during session, I, I have a primary opponent uh, and the primary is in a couple months and I'm knocking on doors. And, and just two days ago, I had a 30 year old who came to the door who never voted in a primary before. He's like, oh, I know who you are. I'm planning on voting for you. And I didn't even have to ask why. I just looked at him. I said, sports betting, right? And he said, yep. <laughs> so the younger the legislature gets, the more likely they are to uh, to be for something like this. I want to focus on what's sort of the most important issue of the moment is getting it through the Kentucky Senate with only a few weeks left in the legislative session. First of all, why did you get such a late start on the release and the drafting of the bill? I remember back in 2019 when you and I were talking prior to my testimony in, in, in Frankfurt, that my testimony was in late 
2019, prior to the actual legislative session beginning, you already had a bill pre-filed. Why such a late start this time around where you had your news conference in February and you left yourself not as much runway to get this over the hump as you started having in 2019? Why such a late start? Two reasons. One, we learned in prior years that if you pass it quickly and you don't have the votes on the floor, that bills like this don't pick up support over time. They only pick up opposition. And we learned that in, in 2019 and 2020. And then last year, due to some crazy Supreme Court ruling, we had to take up the issue of historical horse racing machines. And that's why we didn't focus on sports betting at all. We had to deal with uh, these historical horse racing machines. And instead, we made sure we had the votes and then we boom ran it through committee and ran it out of the house in, in a short period of time. Yeah, so so that was the plan. You went from I'm sorry, your, you went from your news conference to clearing the, the full house of representatives in under three weeks. It was like it was like this like record. Right. That was the plan. And with the news conference, there was four different bills. 606 is the sports betting bill. 607 is paired mutual reform that came out of uh, the historical horse racing machine debate last year. 608 is going after these gray machines. And 609 is a trust fund to deal with problem and responsible gaming, which we require nothing of anyone in the gaming industry in Kentucky to do that. So all those bills, all those other bills were not ready. And I kind of view them as a package. So we thought we'd roll them all out at one time. Let's go to the, you know, the, the, I guess the most important story now going forward. Several weeks are left in the legislative session. Now your bill, which has cleared the House of Representatives, goes to the state Senate for consideration. And I'm going to read you a quote from Senate President Robert Stivers. You know which quote I'm going to, I'm going to you know, sure. use here. It's the energy quote. He said, and this is the president of the state Senate, Sports betting creates no energy with me, and he doesn't think that there's enough support for it in the state Senate. How can you change hearts and minds over the next three weeks and avoid being the World Series runner-up instead of the World Series champion? Nobody remembers who the World Series runner-up is. How are you going to cement not only your legacy, but more importantly, the legacy for sports wagering in the Commonwealth of Kentucky? You've got less than a month left to do it. What's the game plan going forward to secure enough votes to get this to clear the Senate? The game plan is to talk to individual senators one by one. We've got some some of the folks who are supporting it, kind of feeling people out. Uh, I got to sit down with one senator yesterday, and the first thing that senator wanted to talk about was his bills that are languishing over here. Mm -hmm. So it's not all about whether you're for or against it. It's about leverage when you get to this late in the session. Do you need, uh, you, you'll need a, a, a simple majority in the state Senate. Where do you think, at least uh, if you can estimate or project where your votes are, are you close in your mind to having close to, to a bare majority of support? Are you far away? How much legwork are you going to have to do to get over that hurdle? I have to do, we have to do some legwork within the uh, Senate Republican Caucus. The rule around here is uh, you need a majority of the majority. There's 30 Republicans in the state Senate and eight Democrats. And I, I don't know if I need to get to 15 or 16 Republican senators, but that's where I need to get. I believe I have all eight members of the 
Senate Democrat caucus. And as a Republican, it, it's frustrating to hear people run around talking about freedom and then can't see their way clear to you know provide this freedom to people. And as you know, it, it goes on everywhere. I mean, by not supporting this bill, you're supporting the bookies and the offshore accounts. No, I think the best argument is you're supporting the state treasuries of sure. Ohio, of, of you know Missouri. I think the best argument isn't the sort of the boogeyman of the offshore sports book, but the flight of citizen spending and tax dollars across state lines. I went to a gaming conference or some conference once in Ohio, and it was actually in Kentucky, and I couldn't tell the difference. Uh, just going over the bridge, I've never known of a state that is bordered by seven other states. No matter where you are in Kentucky, you can easily get to one of those six or seven states that allow online sports betting. So the $22.5 million of projected state tax revenues are now going to be enjoyed by all of those other states to the detriment of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. I think that's the stronger argument rather than the, uh, the offshore sports books. I mean, it's you know, the so-called fear of missing out. You're surrounded by states that permit this activity, yet you're the state that has the, the real historic element of horse race betting, which probably cements Kentucky as a gaming state much more prominently than any of the surrounding states. And the irony is now they've got something that you don't. So the state tax revenues from, from your border states, I think, may present a very compelling argument to your colleagues in the state Senate on the Republican side. Well, we had a poll done from Public Opinion Strategies, and they do all the polling for Republicans in the House and the Senate. And, and, they, and they've worked for, for a few of uh, our, our congressmen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it came back 65, 26 in favor when you tell them the sports betting we direct to the public pension system, because we have one of the worst funded public pension systems in America, it's not going to fix it, but it's, it, it can be part of the solution. And when you tell people that's where the money goes, the support goes from 65% to 74%. It's wildly popular. It is a small net positive to electoral abilities, you know, and so it, it's, I don't know, I of course don't see any downside or else I wouldn't be supporting it. And, or be on your show. So we're obviously running low on time, not just in the podcast, but in the legislative session. So where does it go from here? Can you give us some indication of what the next step, what the next committee hearing or vote when that might take place in the state Senate? I wish I could, but I, I don't know. I don't have much say over the Senate. I, I, you know, Senator Thayer is extremely busy. I need to check with them and find out where everything is. But it's not going to move. They're not going to move it until it has the votes to pass. And so we're not there yet. And when we get there, when, when you see it start moving, when you see a committee meeting scheduled, that means it's, it's on a pretty good track. And if it gets called up on the Senate floor, well, that means it's probably going to pass. Okay. Well, last question. Governor Bashir has been supportive over the past couple of years of efforts to legalize sports wagering. Is he weighed in? informally or given any indication as to how quickly he would sign this bill into law if it's passed by the Kentucky Senate. He has not said how quickly he, he would sign it, but I don't think it would take very long. Okay. Well, Representative Koenig, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on, um, on this podcast. You know, we've been, you and I have known each other going back to conferences at the National Council of Lawmakers from gaming states. I think I met you in 2018 or maybe even in 2017 for the first time. Yep. And across the country, you've probably been one of the, you know, 
legislative champions of sports wagering, maybe as much so, as much as anybody, if, if not more so than anybody, going back, you know, four rounds of legislative sessions. So thank you for your support of sports betting, staying with it and being persistent and not giving it giving up hope. And, you know, you don't have to make the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. There are very few first ballot <laughs> Hall of Famers, but hopefully you'll make it in your fourth year. And if not, there's no statute of limitations at issue here. Hopefully you'll keep uh, you'll keep after this until eventually sports wagering comes to one of the great gaming states in the nation. Thanks. I've told uh, the, the opponents up here, I'm like, well, I ain't leaving until you pass it. So uh, if you want me gone, you might as well vote for it. Well, I'll, I'll be rooting for you and I'll be following along with the legislative session. And if you need any uh, assistance on the constitutional issue, you know how to find me. So thank you for joining me thank on you. Conduct Detrimental. And uh, I look forward to seeing you hopefully this summer in Boston at the next NCLGS uh, summer meeting. That's the plan. I plan to be there. All right. Well, Adam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very Thanks, much. And I will talk to you shortly and uh, I'll, I'll let you know how, how the podcast goes. Thank you for being my first ever guest on my first sports betting podcast. My honor. Okay. So before we get to what to watch for, I did mention at the top, we have a new sponsor this week, Underdog Fantasy. So I don't know how closely people pay, pay attention. Sometimes I say, like, uh, if you want to, uh, you know, you sponsor the show, just drop us a note. So I think we were talking about sports betting or something. All of a sudden, Dan and I get a DM from Underdog Fantasy, listeners of the show. And they said, we know you guys are looking for sponsors. And I'm like, eh, little known secret. We're always looking for sponsors. We're always open for business. We have no idea what we're doing. We just say, hey, we want a sponsor. And sometimes they pop up, like Isla Murata popped up once upon a time. Guardians popped up once upon a time. We don't really know what we're doing. We just say things. People tend to listen. It's a good time. So um, Underdog Fantasy popped up and they said, listen, we hear you guys like betting. You guys like fantasy. Love to sponsor the show. So we heard a little bit of what they're doing. We heard about their history. People can Google them. It's Underdog Fantasy. Our promo code is conduct. You get some fancy sign-up bonuses if you sign up with our promo code. But also, Underdog Fantasy is just kind of sweet. Those guys are changing the game over uh, with Daily Fantasy. We're going to tell you more about those guys as, as time goes and we, uh, you know, you know, enhance our relationship with them. But welcome to the show, Underdog Fantasy. Our boy over there, Andrew, set us up. You're going to be hearing me talk a lot about fantasy sports the next couple of months. And also, you know, a little bit of March Madness over there, too. So I guess welcome to Underdog. Mike, kick us off with what to watch for. Speaking of daily fantasy sports, the Court of Appeals in New York State has finally come to a decision on the daily fantasy sports constitutional or unconstitutional lawsuit that was brought. This was a re-argument. So in October of 2021, there was a oral arguments on whether or not uh, New York State's sports gambling and specifically daily fantasy sports is constitutional under New York State's constitution, which it is illegal for gambling. Gambling under the New York State constitution is illegal. And under the New York State constitution, the only way to amend the constitution is by a vote of the people. And that is to be determined by the court and not the legislature. What happened was the legislature with Andrew Cuomo, prior governor Andrew Cuomo, he ultimately said that daily fantasy sports was legal and then they were classifying it as a game of skill. And that's like the the, the specific term that is uh, hinged here because the determining factor of the Court of Appeals was that technically daily fantasy sports is a game of skill and not a game of chance or a wager or a gamble as what is illegal under New York State's constitution. 
So that means that Daily Fantasy Sports, and that this is the end of the line. There, there is no appeal from here. The, the Court of Appeals is the highest court in New York State on a, a state issue with the state constitution. So this is the end, and Daily Fantasy Sports, and along with other uh, sports gambling, is legal in New York State. But that ultimately means, based on what I, when I read this, this ruling, is if you're a Daily Fantasy Sports avid player, put it on your resume. Because basically the state said it's akin to general managers for pro teams. So if you want to go apply to your favorite team to be a general manager, make sure you put in the list. Yo, I've been first place 10 years in a row for my daily fantasy sports because I'm basically a general manager. Um, I like that. I've won a couple of fantasy leagues in my time. I'm not sure why the uh, general manager's officer are not calling me, but good to know. And take us away. What's your what to watch for? I mean, really just what to watch for. Uh, first of all, go Yanks. Second of all, my guy, my love of my life, Aaron Judge, if you ever watch this. I love you. He did not actually reach, uh, didn't make a deal by that the arbitration deadline with my beloved Yanks, which means he will basically go into the arbitration process for his contract. It's expected the Yankees are going to give him a, within the ballpark, <laughs> pun intended, of $17.1 million, um, which Aaron, again, I will share with you if that's what you walk away with. Um, but that's really what we're, I'm watching. I'm watching to see how my future husband's contract shapes up. Um, He's engaged. I like it. No, he's engaged to the remember, remember the woman who who got arrested for a DWI out in Arizona. Sports law. She was like, Sports law. she was Wait, like, That's, you don't know my fiance. <laughs> my boyfriend's a Yankee. I <laughs> just assumed that he walked away from that. Hey, no, they are engaged. Oh, man. Assumption of the risk. Assumption of the risk. Okay. So sorry to break it to you, Em. Uh, my what to watch for. We should point out, uh, we had the only commissioner on Conduct Detrimental uh, was Rich Enzor, the commissioner of the MAC Conference, M-A-A-C. So I see a team. I don't really think about it. 15 seed. I would just automatically pick the two, Kentucky. And the 15 seed won. And I'm like, wait, St. Peter's. They're in the MAC Conference. Rich Enzor has been on this podcast. I'm now adopting St. Peter's. So what does St. Peter's do? They go in, right? And they win their next game. They are now in the Sweet 16, a 15 seed. St. Peter's beat Kentucky, right? So the head coach, there's all these fun stats coming out, made $250,000 this year compared to Coach Calipari over at Kentucky, makes close to $9 million. Um, the budgets are like $2 million versus $20 million. The arena cap- you know, capacities are $3,000 versus like $24,000. Um, it is absolutely wild. So shout out to St. Peter's, the, uh, we'll say the official, not the official team, but uh, the unofficial team for conduct detrimental they're the underdog of march madness just as our sponsor has been with us they're the third 15 seed to reach the sweet 16 and if they move on they would be the first 15 seed to to reach the elite eight so that'll put this episode in the books uh wallach is at wallach legal myself at sports all lust emily is at emily costanzo c-o-s-t-a-n-z-o mike is at mike underscore son of underscore law conduct detrimental.com you guys know where to find us. We'll see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.